This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Arsene Wenger has been in Japan for a year. He doesn't know anything about English football. I will love it if we beat them. This is football heritage. Con Giovanni, yeah, incredible. Dribble, 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 dribble. If you don't know the answer to that question, then I think you're, you, you, are, you are an ostrich. We have reached the halfway point of the Premier League season. When we made our pre-season predictions, I don't think many would have said that Liverpool would be 13 points clear of second place Leicester City, that Chelsea and Mourinho's Tottenham Hotspur would be in 6th place, that Carlo Ancelotti's Everton would be in 10th place, and that Mikel Arteta's Arsenal would be 12th. It's a crazy time we're living in. Hello and welcome to the final Total Football Podcast of 2019. I'm your host, Second Heron, and joining me is Andrew Conway. Hello. Uh, Andrew, this all makes sense though, right? Yeah, uh, I just want the listeners to point out it's not only the final of the year, it's the final of the decade. What is the what is the thing from this decade that if you go back in time and meet yourself and tell them what happened, they, they would not believe it all? That's a good question. Let's see. Just in the Premier League. We'll stick with just the Premier League. Okay. Uh, it just Leicester City has to be Leicester City. Yeah, Leicester City is the obvious one. Where were they 10 years ago? Were they in League 1 10 years ago? I think they were mid-championship level. They did spend a time in League 1 this decade, but I'm not sure when. Probably was I'm 10 years ago. I'm going to check that. Would you believe that Marcelo Bielsa was Leeds United manager in the championship? Possibly not, but here we are again. That's that's a mad world we live in. I think if you'd said to me 10 years ago that Carlo Ancelotti would be Everton manager, I'd have expected a, a bit more out of Everton than their 10th. Yeah, but it's it's early days. Like they they already jumped in. Like Everton sacked their manager with their league position in you know complete. I don't know what you want to call it. Freefall. Well, they were in the relegation they were, places. They were in the relegation zone. They didn't look like they were going to come out of it anytime soon. And now they're in tenth, comfortably looking on the up, looking to be a performing side, even though there is clear gaps in the in the team. Uh, some of. Uh, how would you say some of the last couple of managers more high profile signings have already fallen out with the manager if we look at Fabian Delph and what may have may not have happened at the weekend oh I didn't see what happened um, with Fabian Delph did something happen with uh, Ma- himself and uh, Holgate I think God, it was a Holgate that got into a they got in an incident and like uh, Delph was on the field screaming and, you know expletives about knowing your place and uh, respect and stuff like this to, to Holgate which uh that if if when whenever a player starts uh, going on about respect, it tends to be a, a bad sign for that player's uh, history. Well, if you know what I mean, well, it shows, their their future rather. Well, it shows how much football has happened that I just did not see this at all. Yeah, it was <laughs> just in that Newcastle match this weekend. Oh yeah, I forgot they even played Newcastle. It's, there's been a lot of football to digest over the last few days. I suppose, really I suppose we'll start with uh, Mikel Arteta's reign as Arsenal manager getting off to uh, an interesting start. Only one point out of six, but they performances were better, I guess. Yeah. Ozil played well could... against Chelsea, I thought. No, he played well in both matches. He was, um, uh, you know, I, I think there's still problems in, in the Arsenal team. And, uh, like, if we, you can go into a deep dive of it if you, if you, if you want, but... Um, so Arteta's come in, they clearly have a different way that they're playing now, which is kind of, you can see it from, from the off, with the exception of a few players who still seem to do the same old problematic habits, like David Luiz, who was only in the door really, but he likes his true balls and did result, I think, in a goal against Everton, or definitely chances against Everton, in the or not Everton, who are they playing? It was Bournemouth. I've already forgotten, Bournemouth in the opening match. Was it Bournemouth? Yeah, it was Bournemouth on uh, Stevens Day. Yeah, so um, that you know, there's bits of that, but then there's the other bits of Arteta, which are he wants every player to pass the ball, not hold on to the ball for any particular length of time, not to be stupid with the ball and like panic. Really, that's the kind of I think that's what Pep Guardiola is. Um, I think that's what his ideology kind of informs us about, and I think that's what Arteta is continuing with. Is like if you give the player too much time to think about it, and he's not an exceptionally gifted player he will make a mistake inevitably. And, the, you know, it kind of ties into the Jose Mourinho school of thought, but in a different way. Mourinho would have the thing as get rid of the ball, as in just boot it anywhere and, you know, we'll defend. While Pep has the thing, just keep passing around and keep moving and keep passing and keep moving. 
and eventually if you if you drill that into your players enough that chances will create because the opposition will grow tired or make a mistake or or dive in to try and get the ball back and you'll eventually just exploit it and your natural qualities of attack will 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 pour through I don't think that there's been enough time really to judge whether Arteta has had that influence at Arsenal yet I think the 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 game against against Chelsea in particular I think they had Chelsea on the ropes for a large sway of that match and it, it forced uh, Frank Lampard to get to actually make an early change and bring on Jorginho in that match for uh, Emerson who was having a horrid match on on kind of playing a right wing back role uh, it showed that I think the goal that the, uh, Arsenal scored they, they've already been working on set plays it, it's clear like every single every single ball against Bournemouth every single corner I believe they went for the near post corner to Callum Chambers and in this case it finally did work and uh, he nodded it on and uh, and Aubameyang finished but it kind of shows you that there was no prep in Frank Lampard's Chelsea side considering that that's what Arsenal did in every single one of their corners against Bournemouth last week uh, so that would have been an easy fix for Lampard to, to solve but there was a lot of chances and if Lacazette was in any way decent form Arsenal could have been two or three nil up before that Jorginho change came in the second half you could tell they were tiring because you remember that this Arsenal side contained an 18 year old left winger playing left back contained uh, what 20 year old right winger playing right back it had Callum Chambers come off in the first half after you know getting an assist and being relatively solid beforehand with what looks like a bad injury and being replaced by you know Socrates and or sorry Mustafi it was it wasn't even Socrates and Mustafi you could say was suspect for the second goal that was conceded uh, the first goal that was conceded but the equaliser say from from an Arsenal point of view was a silly free kick given away by a centre back making a silly foul on the left hand in the right back position. Uh, and you could say that why was Lacazette making a foul in that position where Chelsea were going nowhere? So that was kind of it was it was compounding bad a bad match for Lacazette that giving away that free kick. But then the goal should never have happened. Bernd Leno, who's probably been Arsenal's player of the season so far, who's made more saves than anyone else in the Premier League this season, made just uh, he misjudged the flight of the ball and went over his fists that were there to punch it slash catch it away, and Jorginho tapped it in. The only mitigating circumstance in it is that Jorginho probably should have been sent off because he he made two silly bookable offences and got away with it even though the I think it was Craig Paulson was the referee in the match gave yellow cards to players both for, both on Chelsea and Arsenal for the exact same kind of foul immediately before and immediately after Jorginho had made the had made that offence which was I think two or three minutes before he scored for Chelsea which is kind of you know it's a kind of fatalistic thing that that was bound to happen but um, yeah Arsenal didn't didn't cover themselves and cover themselves in glory in the last ten minutes of that match, but I think you can look at promising things, and certainly it's something more than what they were showing under uh, what call them under Unai Emery. And as we go into the January transfer window in the next couple of days, I think there could all there there is already noises of a lot of changes happening, and like from a neutral's point of view, I think they should be happy. People should be happy with that kind of change because I think a strong and entertaining Arsenal whether it's a team that can even get close to challenging for titles, which isn't going to happen in the next year or two, would be good for the league because at least you have a bit of entertainment in that way and not the kind of entertainment that AF TV was it uh, yeah, AF TV is what they're called now. Uh what they've been thriving on the last five or so years. You could have actually a bit of entertainment and a bit of um something different in that side of the country in the league. Yeah, I think just with the the Chelsea match in particular, like I think it is slightly promising that instead of them just being bad and losing 2-0 they actually had a lead that they threw away which is obviously not a good thing in the long run but or in the short run but in the long run it shows that they've improved because they've gone from just being they bad a goal. Yeah, they've gone from just being bad to just running out of steam which is two I think it was things. the first time Marcel were ahead in a match first in I th- I think it was a long I think it was several months I know they've only won one match since October seventh or something. Yeah, but I think that was the first time. West Ham, yeah, but they were one 0 down against West Ham. Uh, like I, exactly. I think, I think Arteta showed a bit of his naivete, I suppose. You know, it is only a second match, so you would expect that. Because like, yeah. I just think his game management was poor, but like that's something you just kind of learn on the job. I think really. Uh, uh, with that as well, I think there's mitigating circumstances in that they did lose like 
Saka, who was, the, as I said, the 18-year-old left winger playing left-back, was carrying a knock for most of the match and couldn't come off because there's nobody else to play left-back in the team. No, but I think the, so, I think the, the big issue was they just kind of let Chelsea back into the game too easy. Like, Lampard made that change after 30, 35 minutes, whatever it was, and then Arteta yeah. just didn't even seem to react. And then by the time Chelsea had equalised, it was only then that Pepe came on and it felt like Lacazette should have been taken off because, as you said, like he missed a few chances and his confidence is so low that it just feels like yeah. he is just going to miss those chances now like he it feels like no. he needs rest Aubameyang is the biggest threat that Arsenal have I, I know, maybe it sounds a bit simple for me to say but he's the biggest goal scoring threat Arsenal have why is he not yeah, in the box yeah. through the middle instead of being played out he did wide he scored a goal though he scored a goal when he was put in the box for a set piece like it just goes yeah, to show put him I, in the box a bit more he might score more often like he is a very I good goal I, scorer his whole thing I'm not sure about that but his whole thing is that he's good at being in the box he's a good poacher he is able to find the back of the net uh, when other players necessarily can't. He knows when to be in the right position at the right time. Like that is his strength. Whereas Lacazette, like I really like Lacazette as a player. I think he's just out of form at the moment. He needs a rest. I'd like to see Pepe given a bit of time, even if it seems like Arteta doesn't necessarily rate him in the way that he seems to rate Reese Nelson. And I do like Reese Nelson. I thought his um, battle with Tomori in the first half was very entertaining, but I just don't yeah. understand why. Uh, Lacazette was left on and they didn't bring on the fresh legs of Pepe to just kind of exploit the fact that Chelsea left so much space in behind like it felt like there was something there for Arsenal at 1-0 even when they'd ceded all the possession to catch Chelsea out on the break but it just felt like it it never really clicked and I felt like Lacazette was kind of the weak link there but again I think this is an issue that Arteta will learn from he'll know like okay we can't really throw away one of the leads like that again especially against Chelsea that he'll be he'll be disappointed it was a set piece that they scored from as well and Leno is very unfortunate for him that like he's been so good this season and it's led uh, this is his first mistake really that I can think of this season and it comes when everyone else actually performs uh, to his standard I suppose uh, yeah. but that's just the way it goes sometimes yeah it is it is promising though I think for Arsenal like it, it is a better performance than what they were doing under Lumberg or the last few games under Emery uh, they're, like Arteta seems to be doing something like I saw a thing uh, an interview there with uh, Saka where mm-hmm. he said that oh he's teaching me things that I didn't know uh, granted it was a pretty simple thing of just you know holding onto the ball and drawing pressure and then passing around the pressure as opposed to yeah. just passing under no pressure, which seemed a bit simple. It's like, how did you not know that? But there you go. He's, Arteta is showing these uh, young players yeah. how to do stuff. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how they do with Man United again then on Wednesday, another big game for Arteta, another home game as well. Uh, like, I, I mentioned to you, to this, to you, I mentioned this to you as well. Like, I thought it was a bit disappointing that for Arteta's first home game, a lot of the Arsenal fans just left. At like the eighty-five minute mark or the ninety minute mark. No, but they, like, I don't think they. In fairness, I'll, I'll wind you back a bit. Like I agree. First of all, I agree. Like I said, had a poor game. I know what you're saying about Aubameyang should be playing centrally. He might score more goals centrally. I don't know. I don't think there's balance in the side because at the moment they don't have a left winger or a player that's comfortable playing on the left-hand side that's willing to trace back for them, which is why Aubameyang was out there. Like a majority of his heat map, if you watched it for the match against Chelsea, he was in his own half defending. Uh, so I think that's partially why he was played out on left-hand side. Uh, Lacazette, I don't think he needs a rest because he's been left out. Jumberg left him out of matches in recent weeks, and I, I think, I think Arteta left him out for in in the opening match, if I believe as well against Bournemouth. Uh, so I can see if I'm thinking, I'm not sure if I remember that correctly, but like I can I can see what you mean. But I think there is like as I as I alluded to, I think there's transfers a, a, a coming. Like there is a lot of. I don't know, it's smoke. I don't know if it's fire yet about Aubameyang wanting to leave at Christmas and that Arsenal being open to that if the right offer comes in and about how a couple of Spanish sides might be interested given that their their run to European success might depend on maybe getting a few more goals into the side. So there there is there is links to that part of the the European continent for, for attention there. And if he can get rid of a few other players, it might be good for them. In terms of playing Reese Nelson and taking them off, you have to remember like Arsenal didn't see that goal to the, what was it, the 83rd minute? Yeah, around like that. Yeah. Did, yeah, so you're saying like, oh, um, you're disappointed that he didn't change a great deal. He changed a little bit. He brought because you remember he did have to make a first half substitution for Callum Chambers. He then made a second half substitution with taking off Ozil at whatever seventy something minute mark. And then Reese Nelson was there was a there was a that was a toss up there because Saka was carrying that injury and Reese Nelson was running very low and came down with cramp a couple of times, having to go off the field at one stage to get a treatment. So I think that's why he brought Reese Nelson off at that point. Um, 
Pepe isn't being played because he doesn't have the defensive strengths that Arteta wants. He doesn't chase back as much as like the aforementioned players, and that's why he's not trusted in the system when they're so vulnerable but at the moment. To that, I say like I say, take off Lacazette for Pepe and let him play up front. Let him not need that defensive. Uh, what what's the word? Oh, I- Give it, like don't, responsibility, responsibility yeah. yeah. Don't give yeah. him that when you know it's not a strong point right now. Use the space that's being uh, that is, that you can exploit uh, against this Chelsea side. Try catch them out on the break because if they do that and manage to even just create a chance, like they created nothing in the second half. Like the what? when the when the area was there for them. I just think like I'm not. I'm trying not to be too harsh on Arteta because like again, it's a second game. Yeah. I think this is something he will improve on. There are mitigating circumstances. I just would have liked to have seen him try and take that risk, because they lost the game anyway. So yeah, yeah, like I, yeah, but I, I think the reason he didn't take the risk is because he he had already taken a player off through injury, and there was two young, very young players in Reese Nelson and Saka who were carrying knocks slash going down with injuries at different times. Like, I don't know how Saka continued because he, he appeared to pull up his hamstring at one point and he just kind of ran it off, which is, not you know, it's something you could do when you're 18, but that can't be going on for much longer considering they're playing matches every three days at the moment. It's, it's a bit of a worry for Arsenal. But the reason he didn't take off, I think he would have taken off and likely have done a, a move like you've suggested, like bring on Pepe for Lacazette, switch things around a bit. But it was, I think his hands were tied due to the, like, oh, can Reese Nelson do this? Can Saka do that? I think that kind of caught him unawares because Ozil was, you know, being Ozil can only do 65, 70 minutes at best. So he had to take him off. He was, you know, walking walking wounded isn't unfair. Well, I don't know what he was doing, but he wasn't wounded, but he was just walking around at that point. To your point that oh we should change things up and do something different. I personally I, th- I think Chelsea started taking hold of the match at about the 65th, 70 minute mark, and I think that was a lot down to Arsenal's younger players kind of tiring, because the, they had been the driving force earlier on. They'd been making runs through, they'd making good passes. I think they tired, and I think it was from about the 70th minute on that Chelsea really started to turn the screw against Arsenal, and that's when the the Joe Willock on for Mesut Ozil change was made. But and of course, I think they were home quite well, and I think Pepe could well have come on for Lacazette as well after that if that goal hadn't gone in for Chelsea from the you know the the free kick that Bernardo completely faffed at. Um, so you know there there is a complete mitigating circumstances. I completely take on board what you're saying, but just on one final point before we move on, you're saying they are playing Manchester United in midweek on Wednesday. I think there was a bit of game management. You're saying Arteta was poor at his game management. I think there was a bit of game management going towards that Manchester United match because I I, I feel that like I said, probably won't play against Manchester United. I think it'll be a different kind of team that he'll play to try and exploit the kind of weaknesses Manchester United have in defence in terms of getting strong, quick players against their kind of defensive unit, which you know you know as well as anyone else that that, that isn't their strongest point, and to try and get bodies up the, the you know on top of Manchester United's back four. And I think by playing the likes of Lacazette for a long time would mean he's probably not going to play against Manchester United. And by kind of reserving some of these younger, faster players like Nicola Pepe, maybe that's who's going to get a unleashed, for lack of a better phrase, against Manchester United. Uh, and then it was announced, uh, I think it was yesterday, wasn't it? Or not yet, or yeah, it was yes, announced yesterday that David Moyes will be taking over uh, at West Ham after Manuel Pellegrini was sacked on the 27th, I think it was. Uh, so David Moyes back on an 18th month contract at West Ham and no one is happy about it even David Moyes didn't look very happy about it in the announcement gif that they uh, put up on Twitter uh, will he be back on Premier Sports though? That's, uh, yeah that's uh, that's the thing like he loves his donuts there on Premier Sports yeah. uh, you know I've been able to watch him on Premier Sports he seems like he was kind of itching to get back into a job even mm-hmm. though he didn't necessarily want to talk about uh, any potential roles and it was brought up uh, yeah. but I think this is a bit of it like this is West Ham summed up I think like I saw an image there you know there was that 10 year challenge thing a post a picture of yourself uh, at the start of the decade and end of the decade and the, someone put up one for West Ham where it showed they were sat 17th in the Premier League at the start of the decade and here they are now at the end of the decade sat 17th in the Premier League hmm. uh, like they've spent a lot of money I really like this West Ham squad I think they've got a lot of great attacking talent there you just love for no reason uh, you love this West Ham squad I do I, you know Jack Wilshere Mark Noble. Jack, Jack Wilshere rarely plays these days. Whenever they do, whenever he does play, they lose. Uh, so he's a bit of a weak link there for sure. But like, I, I really like Philippe <laughs> but Anderson. But you love the squad. Uh, I, I really like Philippe Anderson, one of my favourite players in the league, I think, at the moment. Well, not necessarily at the moment, but last season. Uh, Sebastian Haller, I thought, was a good signing. Uh, Yarmolenko has been decent for them when, he, when he's when he been fit. 
Uh, Declan Rice, I think, is a quality midfielder. Mark Noble seems to compliment him better than anyone else there at the club. Defensively, they've just looked so lethargic under Pellegrini. Miguel Antonio, like they didn't look like going anywhere under Pellegrini, who I think is a solid manager, but I don't know what it was. Maybe he's just phoning it in. Maybe the game is just passing by. Maybe I'm just gonna be really harsh on Pellegrini here. Uh, But. it was obvious that change was needed at West Ham, but David Moyes also doesn't seem like a great solution. Like he did well the first time round, even though no one was happy with that appointment at the time either. Mm, uh, yeah. But West Ham are like there's a lot of poorly run clubs in the Premier League, but West Ham are a special breed. It seems with uh, Golden Sullivan, the Dildo Brothers is uh, someone yeah. sporting. It was a Sporting Lisbon called call them that time. Yeah, well, it's that's you know it's it's the main business plan of those two guys is to sell that sort of stuff. So fair enough. That that is their their, yeah, their not driver an inaccurate, of West Ham uh, nickname yeah. for sure. Just a funny yeah. one. Uh, so like, it's the season is obviously a write off. David Moyes is being brought well, in just. To, I think it is. Like, what, what what was expected of their season? That's the thing, and this is what we said when we talked about Everton earlier in the season, who were in a very similar position under uh, Marco Silva. Is like. If you are a West Ham and Everton, a good team, well-supported team, not likely to get relegated, though is it is possible, what do you want from your footballing season? Do you want to have fun? Do you enjoy do you want it? To, yeah, do you want to enjoy it? But like, Obviously, West Ham weren't enjoying it under Pellegrini. Everton weren't enjoying it under Silva. Everton go and get Carlo Ancelotti. They also had a few other pretty progressive candidates on their shortlist, including the likes of Mikel Arteta, and there's a few others on there as well. So they had a plan in place that were going to, they were going to play some kind of a, have a joined up way of thinking to get the best out of what they could possibly achieve. And West Ham don't seem to have that kind of joined up thinking and haven't really ever. I think Slavin Bilic tried to inform some of that when he was in charge. He tried to bring through some youth players. He tried to like have a progressive style of playing. He fell out with the the fans and with the club in the end before he left. But at least he was trying to do something. Like he wasn't think, back from upstairs. What I think is indicative of West Ham's problem is not only did they sack Pellegrini, Pellegrini and his backroom staff, but they also sacked the director of football, uh, Mario Husios, I think his name was, uh, who was brought in at the same time as Pellegrini. And th- like when mm. that ma- move was made, it did seem like that was the uh, kind of joint-up thinking you're talking about. But now mm. they've completely thrown everything out the window and they have to start again. And David Moyes is yeah. not someone you bring in to, to build for the future, to build a squad. He's someone you bring in to avoid relegation, to sustain a level of like mid-table mediocrity. And then uh, he gives a base for someone else to work with to actually do yeah. something interesting. And like it just feels like, what what is the point of West Ham at the moment? They yeah. they they just don't seem to be going anywhere, doing anything. And they've spent all this money building a decent squad. Obviously, you still got issues. I still think they need a, at least one, if not two, competent midfielders who can pass the ball and uh, know how to tackle, uh, shield the defense a bit better. Because Declan Rice is doing a lot of stuff by himself, and he's very mm. young and can't be relied upon at that age. Uh, to do that all by himself in such a in such a in such a side that's not going to dominate possession anytime soon either. Yeah. Uh, so he's being asked to do a great deal there that he needs help with. But also, could he go at Christmas? That's a, another thing. Yeah, that is an interesting thing. I I don't know. Will West Ham want to sell players now in January, having just made the managerial change? But maybe it will be the perfect time for them to make changes. Who knows? Um, yeah. Well, I think it's it's not a case that they want to make changes. I think an offer could come in for Declan Rice because he would fit a hole perfectly in a couple of different Premier League sides, most notably Manchester United, as being that kind of better upgrade of Scott McTominay um, in that side. But to you know offer a kind of defensive solidity and a base to build on, as you say, I know what you're saying about David Moyes, and you know maybe we are maybe we're being a bit harsh on him. He did once; he was once considered a progressive manager. He did surround himself with a lot of good coaches. He did, you know. 10 years uh, ago though that's 10 yeah. years ago well it's probably more like 20 years ago at this stage when he when he was bringing through the likes of Wayne Rooney when he would spot gems like Mikel Arteta when he would get the best performances out of you know not not the fantastic players but like Leon Osman had a great Premier League career because of David Moyes or the you know the tail end of Duncan Ferguson's career you know he, he managed to get really good performances out of 
uh, like players who weren't really doing that. And I think he, he did that the last then, time he was well. at West Ham as well. Last time he, he did was that at West Ham, he got the best out of uh, Marco Arnautovic. I'll give him credit for that. Like Arnautovic had Carson Cole, you know, uh, very good form there. I remember he did really well against Chelsea when they were the champions that time, uh, mm. and, and he seemed to by the end of his time get the London Stadium back on side uh, on side the players there, which was an achievement in itself. But it felt like the last time he left, it was it, then was the time to really grow the club and actually go, go somewhere and move forward. And now they've literally gone back to where they started, what was it, two years what? ago. And it just it just sums up West Ham, really, that they are such a shambles that they've had to go crawling back to David Moyes. Like, what have they done at the time since he left, really? Like, what, what, what would have well, happened spent differently? Money. Yeah, they spent money and it's not really got no. them anywhere. Like, no. uh, they're actually further down the table than they were with David Moyes. Like, yeah. they could have just kept David Moyes and, like, he'd barely be able to tell the difference. Which sums up, I think, so much yeah. of what's wrong at West Ham. And I don't think there's anything to suggest that anything will improve at West Ham as we go into the next decade. Like, we, yep. we could be sit here again in 10 years saying, oh, yeah, look at West Ham, sat 17th in the Premier League again. Yeah. No, I, I entirely agree with you, but you... you when you are in the position of Karen Brady or uh, Golden Sullivan, you're you're looking at the situation. You can't look at the past so much. You have to look into the future and say, okay, w- bygones speak bygones. We are where we are now. So what can we do to improve it? What are the ava- what are the available options? Oh no, we've waited too long to appoint a successor. So we have to go and find whoever is going to get the best situation for us at this moment. I think they gave him an 18-month contract because he wouldn't accept a six-month deal. And I think they could well sack him again at the end of, uh, uh, in the summer if they can find a better appointment available. I'm not sure if they will or if they can attract a, a greater caliber of coach than David Moyes at the moment. Maybe Eddie Howe is the is, is long-term option in that situation and maybe if he's given backing. But like... With a lot of these clubs, it's not a case of backing anymore because they've all spent money, and it turns out like for the most part, you know, basically these lower level clubs now are spending 30, 30 million on a player that they used to spend five million on, and they're getting the same return on you know they're not even the same return, but they're getting the same performance out of the players they would have for the five million. It's kind of just hyper and not hyperinflation, but significant inflation in the market. So, a lot of money doesn't get you what it used to get you. So you're looking at it to try and, as we said, have a more holistic approach to the whole situation and like, okay, what are our assets? What is good about this club? What can we do to promote it? What can we do to insulate ourselves from future failure? Which is really what you have to be doing because we've touched on it a few times briefly, but you know, there is some kind of reckoning coming in the, like, if not in the next five years, certainly in the next 10 years of, you know, a Premier League reset where it'll join the, the ranks of the other leagues in Europe in some fashion whether it's through you know television money collapsing or a reset on the whole economy of football. So you need to be in a good position when that day comes. And is David Moyes' appointment going to get you in that good position? I'm not so sure, but then again, I don't know what other options they had. Same with Pellegrini, was clearly not working for them. And then finally, I uh, just want to talk about VAR and how busy of a season it had over the last few days, because... Like, uh, like not, nothing necessarily new happened over the course of the last few days, but it was just so much, not necessarily controversy, because technically he didn't get any decisions wrong, but there was just so much of it in the, the focal point of what people talk about. Like, there was the incident there, like, it came to a head, really, I think, in the Liverpool-Wolves game. Wolves particularly feeling aggrieved by VAR this week, because, well, they've the, the stats show that actually they've had the most amount of decisions go against them, and they're the only team yet to have a decision overturned, which... Uh, which is quite interesting and may- maybe says a lot about the way Wolves play. Maybe maybe it just is a sign that a team can get unlucky with her. Who knows? Like It's still early days that it's hard to necessarily pinpoint exactly what the cause of that is. But IFAB have actually stepped in. They're, they're the lawmakers of the game, really, essentially. Uh, stepped in to say that the Premier League has been using VAR wrong on offsides, which I thought was like unclear like they've really not helped themselves I think and they've kind of no. thrown the Premier League refs under the bus because like the our understanding of it has always been an offside is an offside like there is no clear and obvious uh, distinction with offsides it's just everything else you know has the referee made a clear and obvious mistake but then IFAB have come out today and said oh no offsides can be reviewed under clear and obvious mistakes and it's like well that's not what you were saying before and now you're saying it like 
basically saying we've wasted our time with the process of VAR over the last four months. And it's just like, it's confusing us uh, as the viewer in a way that like they really should clear up and clear up as soon as possible because like I'm going into the matches on Wednesday not really knowing what they're going to do for offside decisions on VAR and like that's not really acceptable. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you entirely. It's, it's, I, it, like, I think there is, VAR is a complex issue and I don't want to dive straight into it, but it may as well. I think there's a lot of misinformation. There has been, as you've detailed there, there's been a lot of conjecture and a lot of confusion surrounding the implementation of VAR in the Premier League. This you could have all foreseen before the beginning of the season. And they tried to get up in front of it and, you know, give these kind of seminars and how everything's going to work and how everything's going to go on. Yet things haven't really gone that way. Even in the last few months, it's become a lot like we didn't see these decisions in September. If you remember, there was no kind of and I don't know whether it's a case that there's just more, I don't know, fractional offside decisions. I don't think there is. I think the decisions are just being made now because they're learning as they go. I feel that the media input in the UK and in the Premier League in general, the spotlight that's thrown on it doesn't help the situation because I think everyone's looking for an angle on these things and looking for you know some kind of contro- controversy to to attack. I think the likes, you know, we talked before and kind of Jess and Martin Tyler brings up brought up fire constantly last season and continues to bring up fire this season and you know kind of to prod and get something out of his co-commentators to. To get you know a, 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 a I don't know what would you call it a kind of a hit from it to kind of you know push that uh, narrative so that then Sky in the post match thing can have a nice twenty minute conversation and retain ratings for the subsequent ads that are going to appear on the channel and they're not alone doing that I'm just using them as an example everyone is at that so I I think my my to sum my my thoughts on this I think it's bad it's not necessarily as bad as everyone thinks it is I think. I don't necessarily agree that the right decisions are being made constantly, but I think for the most part with these decisions, they are a black and white thing. There is no grey line, and no matter what people want about giving the benefit of the doubt to the attacking player, or giving, oh, you know, there has to be clear daylight in inverted commas, as they said, which is only a thing that's existed for 20 odd years. Um, I think that for the most part, if it's an offside, it's an offside, and even if it is fractional, so. That that's offside. If we will eventually go to the, I know people don't want to hear about it, but you know, we are not a hundred miles away. We're not a hundred years, I should say, away from having completely autonomized refereeing and matches, removing all kind of uh, sub- subjectivity or yeah, subjectivity from the game. And when that happens, <laughs> it's going to happen constantly. But everyone will have to set themselves up with like, yeah, I suppose they are the right decisions. Like, there's still teething problems. I consider this teething problems, but you know. I think 80, 85 to 90% of the decisions so far that have gone through VAR have been correct. Would you disagree? I don't yeah, it's just like the process. Like, There's been a lot of times as well where it seemed like even it, back to go back to the Wolves-Liverpool match, the Liverpool goal itself went to a review of VAR because it was initially disallowed by Angie Taylor for handball. And the first time I saw the replay, I thought, oh yeah, that strikes the shoulder. That's, that's a goal. Give it. And then mm. they showed the replay again and again and again and again and I was like come on guys what are you actually looking at here let's let's give the goal let's move on let's keep going like it just it's taking too long like I remember there was an incident in the Tottenham Everton match I can't remember what exactly the incident was I think it was checking a, a handball for a penalty uh, mm. late in that game when it was still 1-0 to Tottenham and again it just was like really obvious no that's not a handball or whatever the decision was and it was just i just remember it being really obvious at the time no that does or does not hit the person's hand i can't remember which way it went in the end because mm. it was about a month and a half ago now but i just remember thinking what is taking so long like i've I, like we've looked at the angles for this handball decision i don't get why we're still looking at it and we're looking at it again about four or five more times and i think with the offside law like it is not necessarily like it's not the VAR's fault or like the referee's fault like, I, I don't really know what the referee can do about the the Wolves goal that was not given on oh it was a Sunday the days are all melting into each other at the moment mm. like I, I don't really know what they could have done like they it the technology showed that he was offside it was very fractional obviously but he was offside I don't I don't think that that offside decision was necessarily in the spirit of the original offside law that was written but also, it's not the offside law that exists now. They have to just do what is in the rule books. They can't yeah. just pick a rule and go, ah, that's too close. Let's ignore the rule. Yeah. Like 
they're not being helped at all. Like, I really feel bad for the referees. Like, they don't help themselves sometimes, you know. Like, we talked about the Jorginho yellow card, and there were actually yeah. plenty of incidents this weekend where I thought, and this season in general, like, what, what yeah. does it actually take for someone to get a second yellow card these days? Because it seems very unclear at the moment how someone needs to get sent off in a football match for mm. whatever reason, but that's a different topic. Uh, like, it just seems like the refs need the help from the likes of IFAB to kind of clear things up and just to show everyone like what is actually going on because there's a lot of disinformation as you said or false information about VAR it's not very clear the TV side of things hasn't helped the fact that like they don't necessarily know what's going on although some pundits are very good for it Alan Shearer has been pretty good this year actually for having a clear and obvious clear and obvious again apparently pun understanding of what VAR is doing and what it's supposed to do and what the rules of the game are but not every uh, pundit seems to have those same same kind of uh, that same knowledge that the that Alan Shearer has and it's just kind of it makes it confusing like it feels like if I didn't follow Dale Johnson on Twitter I'd have absolutely no understanding of VAR because it's so all over the place and you know it just, just as well that one guy who works for ESPN knows so much about it because it is his mm. job to know that much like it like it really uh, the other thing as well that confuses me is like when I watch La Liga matches or Serie A matches or Bundesliga matches, like we don't have these incidents. There isn't as much uproar. Like, what is it about the Premier League that seems to just lend itself to these really tight offside calls and the absolute uproar that is uh, the result of these kite calls? It's it well, just I, doesn't make I think, any sense to me. Yeah, it seems to be the instruction to the referees is slightly different in these other leagues where the it's more. It's, it's odd it's like the referees on the field have the final say while in the Premier League it seems that the VAR has the final say so the assistant referees have been told not to put up their flags until a decision you know until it's clear you know a clear and obvious offside or something like that has been made they're meant to keep it down the play go on and the VAR decide about it afterwards in these other leagues I think they're in they're told to be more proactive about it and they're told that you know you you need to you know in the Bundesliga you need to put up your flag if you if you think it's offside and we'll we'll work it out immediately or the ref can decide overrule you and play on or whatever like that and I think the other thing that's very important that must be noted with the other, the other leagues is that they're actually using the on you know the pitch side screens the referees are going over and assisting with the VAR communicating with the VAR they're both looking at the same image and then they both make you know the referee on field referee is the final say the final adjudicator is him he makes the decision no matter what fire says so if at the moment like I remember seeing it who was what's it, Michael Oliver a couple of times I, who in what big it was a big match earlier this season and it was just I think it was the um, Man City Liverpool match you know the handball and the whole the whole incident that happened with Trent Alexander-Arnold leading to the who scored that goal? That's Fabinho Fabinho scored that goal and he was just pointing at the, you know, oh, I didn't hear anything, you know, I didn't hear anything. It's not my fault. You can't blame me. It's VAR, you know. And he was like trying to be chummy with the players doing that. Or it might have been that exact incident, but I remember M- Michael Oliver saying it's like, it's not my fault, sorry. You know, kind of disowning the decision, which is not the position you should be in the ref. You should own it. You should be 100% behind your decision making. Like they were last season, for instance, when they didn't have the assistance of VAR. I think they'll probably have a... I don't know when they will. Maybe the international break will be the next option they'll have to actually sit down and regroup and decide, okay, well, how are we going to do this? Uh, the because beginning of February, I think they're, the IFAB themselves are having a meeting yeah. with uh, various referee bodies to sort out the rules of the game again, I think. With the predominance of the British media in the Premier League and the effect they have on the game in, as in, in itself, you can see this before, like the way they can get managers sacked because if the media turns against you, everyone's it seems turns against you and it's only a matter of time before you eventually got rid of you can see that if, if things continue as they are i think the media will pick up pace and will have var gone out of the premier league at least by next season if it stays the same so i think changes have to be made i think using the screens is the next evolution of it because if you remember at the beginning of the season there was uproar with var wasn't involving itself in certain decisions because it was up to the on you know on-field referee to make the decision before var came involved and then after that kind of came up on Sky Sports or BT or whoever was reporting on it, suddenly the following week you saw all these decisions being made by VAR and then the following week there was a backlash to that again. And you can't, you can't work in that reactive environment. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Happy New Year. Over the last week, every Premier League club has played two times, most playing their games within 48 hours of each other. 
Wolves in particular drew the short end of the stick having to play the champions Manchester City and the champions elect Liverpool within 40 hours. This saw sides stretching their squad limits, with Brendan Rodgers even making as many as 9 changes in between fixtures. Now, only two days later, they all must play again on Wednesday. Many managers across the division have been very outspoken in their desire for this fixture congestion to change. What are the solutions to this annual problem, and what effect has, ha- has this had on this season's topsy-turvy table? Well, the, uh, the well, I'm looking at the table right now, and it hasn't changed anything at the top of the table, because first and second are still the same. And despite, uh, what is it, La, one win in four for Leicester City, they're still safely in second place. Um yeah, but the rest of the league is is completely is a basket case entirely. Like the Norge are somehow still bottom of the table despite probably putting in their better better performances the last few weeks than they have done most of this season. Aston Villa continue to lose matches but are still somehow just in the 18th position, and you know one win will take them safely into 15th. Um, Even Everton, all, like we talked about Everton earlier, like they were in the relegation zone and now they're 10th. Yeah, Manchester United are in fifth place somehow, some bizarre way. Like as you said in the intro, like Spurs are sixth place. Um, Jose Mourinho's Spurs are sixth place despite playing some of their worst football of the season and coming back and winning two matches they shouldn't have won, uh, or well, one match they shouldn't have won and another match they should have lost most likely. Um, yeah, that's that's the thing though that I I kind of want to talk about with this is like. For everything we've talked about this year and all the criticisms we've had for the big six, only Arsenal are actually outside the top six positions and they are now arresting those issues and trying to come back from that. And obviously I think their season can be written off. Whether they finish the top six I think doesn't even really matter now because they have fallen somewhere behind. But with the other five, they've all managed to stay in despite having relatively crap seasons, except for obviously Liverpool, uh, who are... Man City have not had a crap season. Like, sure, they've dropped points in seven matches, lost five matches, but you know, for in in most situations, that's a normal Which season. Team? Man City. Man, okay, yeah, Man City. They had no, but I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. It just by seems their current yeah. standard. Well, by Liverpool's standard at the moment, they're having yeah. a crap season. Like forty-one um, points is still good. They'll still comfortably finish top four, but it's not what was expected of them at the start of the season. Yeah, well, it could have been what it's expected, but it's not. It's not matching the pace of Liverpool. The ridiculous eighteen wins and one draw of Liverpool. You know, considering their goals scored, it is crazy that they're that far ahead. Oh yeah, like they've they've been eking out a lot of their victories mm. in a way that like just no other side has ever managed to do. Yeah, like, it's like watching it's... an old Italian side. Like they're they're not, not not, and I'm not saying that in a negative way. Like they're playing Catanaccio, but I mean, it's. It's very, you know, bare min- not bare minimum, but it's very functional, their victories. They, they remind me more of Rafa Benitez's Liverpool than they do Jurgen Klopp's oh, I think, Dortmund. I think that's unfair on <laughs> Klopp. I, I don't think there is uh, uh, that kind of footballing side. I, I think they are a bit more expansive and a bit more proactive in their play. I don't think they sit everyone behind the ball the way Rafa would and kind of pick people off on the break. When, and, they, when they don't have the ball, they are very comfortable with just putting everyone behind it, though. Yeah, but that's kind of... Yeah, I, 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 I acknowledge that, fair enough. But the the greater point here is that despite all this, it just goes to show that by having all that much more money and having that greater squad size, it, when the fixtures do pile up, it is like Man United won their two games, Chelsea lost to Southampton but beat Arsenal, Tottenham got, what, four points out of their two games? Mm. Uh, like, it just goes to show that, first of all, all it takes is two wins to shoot up the table. Yeah. And secondly... All it takes is everyone else to get a little tired and your greater squad's depth can just come in and wipe the floor with these teams. Because Man United against Burnley, like Man United weren't exactly, an, like it wasn't exactly an amazing performance, but they were also pretty comfortable against Burnley, who were yeah. absolutely dreadful. And I yeah. imagine a lot of that dreadfulness was to do with how tired they were because they just played a couple of days beforehand. Yeah. Uh, like it, it just seems like why. Do we, it's like, need, it's do we unfortunate. need all these teams to play three games no. in the space of a week? Like It feels like we could keep the amount of days worth of football and still have everyone be fresh and ready for two games of football. Yeah. Like We could have six games on Stevens' day or Boxing Day. We could have, a, we could have day, games sprinkled out over the next couple of days, then get to the weekend and have a, a few games sprinkled out. Like We don't need to have a huge... 10-game extravaganza where you only actually end up watching two or three of them all in one day and then uh, one match on the next day and then, oh, everyone's back playing again the next day. and It doesn't need to be this way. No. Like We've got 
we've we've had everyone playing on Saturday. We've had everyone playing on St. Stephen's Day, and now we've got everyone playing again on Wednesday, New Year's Day. Like it just seems like it used to be more spread out in a way that didn't tire everyone out. And like the thing with everyone being tired in football matches, it usually lends to less entertaining football matches. Mm. Like they're kind of they're diluting the product and they're making it less interesting by this dilution. Like it, it's two it's a twofold problem really. Like they like that's what I mean. Like they could still dilute the brand but still keep everyone fit. That's what yeah. I'm trying to say. Oh, I agree with you entirely. I think the, the way to solve this, I don't think necessarily getting rid of Christmas football and introducing a winter break would do it because I think while it would be nice for the, probably a lot of the staff and the footballers themselves to have a Christmas holiday, um, it's not what the public is used to. It's not necessarily what we want from the Christmas window. They want Everyone wants to watch a bit of football at Christmas. It is a tradition. It is fun to watch. I know I like and it. And I know it's you comforting like it. as well for those who maybe don't have... Oh, like they don't celebrate Christmas so they, they don't have yeah. the best of time around Christmas like it is a good comfort for those people as well it is absolutely but I think I think you're hit the nail on the head with this we, I think the reason in the past we you may not remember that the the teams were like they weren't this tired in the past well the, the game is more flurry now it's more high tempo it always has been the game always goes that way but also they used to play all they used to play 10 games on the 26th and then 10 games on the following Saturday and then 10 games on New Year's Day and everyone was okay with that because everyone was in the same boat now they're stringing matches over several days you made the the mention of Wolves who had to play a really weird calendar and you know Man City were in that kind of boat, boat as well and so were Leicester City which is why they made nine changes of them playing on different times on different days and not having the same amount of recovery time some having to travel different places you know it all affects your ability to perform in these matches and I think really the, the, the easy solution to kind of resolve this and I don't think anyone would really mind and you're right you could come up with some creative ways of moving things around by putting matches on different days it's just drop one of the fixtures just have two matches in that time period you don't need the middle Saturday to be filled with another 10 fixtures you don't necessarily need like it depends on what the way the calendar falls but usually this has been a particularly bad year for it because you only had 48 hours between the two but it's usually something in along those lines that they own that's all they get between matches so you know you need a bit of creativity with this and I think dropping a fixture one of the fixtures one of the match days or game days whatever game weeks whatever you want to call it and maybe just having two in the the kind of 10 day period rather than three and then leading into four when if you include the FA Cup as well yeah like that is the thing like I like I have no doubt that the FA Cup will be hit the most out of this because yeah. like the conversation for the last 20 years has been oh these Premier League clubs are devaluing the FA Cup by not putting out serious squads but like what do you expect them yeah. to do when there's so much more money on the line in the Premier League yeah. and the games are coming so thick and fast that they just have to rest these players otherwise yeah. they'll completely run into the ground and they won't even they'll be picking up injuries left and right and they won't even be able to finish the season the way things yeah. are going like they need well, like, this break yeah they if you ahead. look at if you look at, say, you know, Sheffield United, one of my picks were going down, and which is a team that's very interesting, but I don't think they play the best football in the world. Uh, they were in fifth place. They were in Manchester United's position a week ago. Now they're in eighth place, having lost and dropped points in, in the t- last two matches. Like, if they had won those matches, I know it's a w- what-if game, but they would have been in fourth place in the Champions League places, and with 36 points, would have been safe, effectively. And now look at them, like, they're they're in... They're in a bad run of form now, going into two more tough fixtures in the, in another week. You know, it's 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 unfortunate for them, and that could you know it could. I'm not saying it will, but it has the potential to tailspin a season that was looking very promising up to a few days ago. And I think a lot of it can be counted back to the fact that they only had limited break between matches in a tough time of the year when they've had to travel, when they've had to do different things. And it's working against them and their small squad and their small stature in the league. I think it's much easier for a club at the top of the league, like Man City, like Liverpool, like Leicester, like Chelsea, like Man United, like Tottenham, to actually absorb these type of changes and be able to put out, like you said, Leicester City changed nine players for their match at the weekend and still won. So that was an achievement in itself. Yeah, like it, it just feels like this is unsustainable. And I, I mentioned in my intro as well. Like it, this is an annual problem that comes up every year, and every year we, we keep saying the same things, and it just mm. feels so defeatist. And like the solution so far has been to come up with a really weird idea for a winter break that happens in spring, in February. 
Mm. where like I don't know if uh, listeners are aware but we're coming into I think it's the 8th of February only 5 games up instead of 10 that weekend and then the 10 teams that did play that weekend will get the next weekend off and the 10 teams that didn't play on the 8th will play on the 15th so the teams themselves will get 2 weeks off but we won't get a week off from viewing but it just feels kind of like Why didn't they do like that a, now? Then why didn't they do that over Christmas? Yeah, it does it, like it feels like it's not a proper solution to no. uh, an, a problem that needs a good solution. Mm. Because like, look at it last year. Like Man City ended up playing Liverpool in January for whatever way the fixtures fell, and both teams had just been off the back of playing two hard games before that, and yeah. it resulted in, I would say, an underwhelming match between yeah. two title favourites. Like it ended up being one of the better matches last season, just because it was against two such quality sides. A lot riding on the, it, yeah. The intensity wasn't quite there in that match, and like the teams could have done with having a weak build up to it, yeah. Or even just a Champions League match in the middle of it, if it, yeah. if it had happened in April. But like that's a much more natural fixture congestion of mm. you're just competing on a certain amount of uh, fronts. Like you're on the FA Cup, you're in the Champions League, you're in the Premier League, your fixtures will pile up. Yeah. But this is just Premier League piling fixtures on top of fixtures for no real reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it is a, it's a weird decision they've made. I don't think a lot of their international partners, I don't think, are happy with the way the fixtures lie in these couple of days because it overwhelms their ability to show things. I don't like the likes of NBC in America. You know, it's, it's. I know it's great in some regards, but the the crews that are working on all those matches, it's tough to actually juggle all that. And when they could actually sustain greater viewership by spreading them out over more time, and that could be spreading it out over, you know, those kind of gapped game weeks that you discussed there that's happening in February. Like, why didn't they do something like that now and kind of, I think everyone would be in agreement for it. The clubs, the fans, not to have this burnout that you kind of suffer when you have too much on it, too short a period. Yeah, and then like you just look at the games, like how many of them were truly entertaining? Like the highlight of the games, I think, was Man City Wolves, which had a lot in it. Uh, Man City go two 0 up despite being down to ten men, and then Wolves come back and win a three two. But then you look at Wolves, they go to Liverpool, and you can just visibly see that they're just wrecked from having to put so much into winning against Man City. And like obviously that is a special case because they played two of the best sides in the country back to back in such a short space of time, but. We're looking at Sheffield United now. They went to Man City on Sunday. They really put in a great shift. We're unlucky to lose that 2-0. They actually beat Man City on XG, which uh, is I th- which I found surprising, to say the least. Mm. But then they have to play at Anfield uh, again on, when- on Thursday, which is it's better than what Wolves had because there is that extra, I think it's an extra 24, if not 48 hours, but it's still such a short span. They've already played a game as well on Steams' day on the 26th. Like it's just, we're asking so much of these players. Like I get that they're professionals and they're being paid a lot of money, but like that's not an excuse. Like they are human beings. They need mm. and deserve time to rest, especially at such a uh, a busy period for family as well. Uh, with it being Christmas and stuff and New yeah. Year's as well, uh, is a busy time for people. Like we're we're really asking a lot of these professionals, viewers, to demand entertaining football from them over the course of three games uh, in seven days. Like it's too much. If we if we just spread out the matches in a more intelligent manner and actually televise them as opposed to Man City's Chef, Man City's uh, match against Sheffield United, which was put on at a weird time but not put on television for yeah. no real reason. Like Leicester West Ham was the same case. Yeah, just like that goes to show how poorly planned out it is that they were initially supposed to be put on at three o'clock on the Saturday, which is of course the time they can't televise games, but they had to be moved to weird times. So that fixture congestion didn't actually just eat these teams alive, mm. uh, but it's still not acceptable. Like if they're going to move these teams, these games around, they need to be way more intelligent about it. They need to just scrap one of the game weeks and just split the games out. Like have three a day. Like yeah. we're sat here with all these games on on the one day, and now we're sat here on Monday and Tuesday with no games. Yeah. And it just seems like they've front loaded it in a weird way that's left us with this weird break in the middle where I feel like I should be watching a football match right now, but I'm not. Yeah. So instead, I'm kind of sitting here wondering, well, do I just stick on the darts? What, what do I do? <laughs> not that. I'm going to stick on the darts, don't worry. Oh, no. Uh, darts is great. Uh, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, like, it doesn't feel like there's really a, a will for this to change either. Like, the managers are the only people really that I see talking about it. And obviously they would because it affects them the most. 
Uh, but plenty of managers did come out. Nuno Espirito Santo obviously came out. Uh, Klopp spoke out about it. Pep uh, Solskjaer spoke about it. Like these are managers who have big squads. Like let alone the likes of Chris Wilder, who was a tiny squad and is a lot of is, is expected of them because uh, like they run around a lot. They have some yeah. of the most. Um, they have some of the busiest players in the league uh, statistically. Uh, like we haven't really seen uh, a much ten- much attention given to them. Uh, despite the fact that they have a really tough schedule, mm. and it just feels like we're just going to lead to burnout, and mm. for so needlessly yeah. that I wonder when something will change. Like, will it will it need something drastic to happen before a change is actually made? Because I I'd be surprised if come February all the managers are like, oh yeah, this winter break ended up being great for us. Yeah, with the exception of Jurgen Klopp, I don't see it happening. I love football. Thank you. Well, we've just bashed uh, the fact that there are a load of fixtures on, but I suppose it's also our duty to now preview them. We've got a few interesting games of note on uh, New Year's Day that hopefully will not be marred by everyone start getting tired after 45 minutes. Uh, but let's firstly look at Manchester City versus Everton. Uh, Carlo Ancelotti's got two wins from two in his first two games. Dominic Calvert-Lewin seems to be in the goals again for him. Uh, they've troubled Man City in the past. Uh, can they trouble Man City now in the present? I think very, very easily they could. It was It's the last time they played the, the Champions League semi-final, Carlo and Pep. Oh, it must have been, yeah. Yeah, so you think about that back in, if, if people don't remember, it was uh, Real Madrid versus Bayern Munich, and uh, Real Madrid absolutely destroyed Pep Guardiola, giving him a complete crisis of confidence and a bit of a nervous breakdown if you were to believe the Pep Confidential book um, yeah so there might be a little bit of baggage with this match coming into it I think Carlo similar to what we talked about earlier with Mikel Arteta I think Carlo was slowly and it is going to be a slow implementation of his methods I think he's still feeling out this squad significantly I think there's a lot of as you said about the Fabian Delph getting into that fight with Hull, I think it was Holgate he got into the fight with. I could be wrong about that, but it was definitely one of the younger players he got into a fight with on the field and was reported. Um, so whether that kind of animosity is continuing throughout the side, um, I'm not. I'm not sure yet. But it could be. It could be a fiery match because like Everton against Newcastle, I watched that and Everton weren't at their best, but at the same time you could kind of see the seeds that Duncan Ferguson had put in there by having that bit more high intensity. I think we all know Carlo was a very good um, comedian or an adapter to the teams that he has in front of them. He will work. He has a style he likes to play. He likes to play kind of a 4-3-2-1 or 4-2-3-1 depending on, on the players he has. But I think he, he's shown before 4-3-3 or an adapting to whatever needs or whatever system works best with this, with the players he has always shows up. It's just always bizarre why he doesn't work international football because I think he would do very well at it. And cup football for that matter because that's what he was best at, at the other clubs he's been at. But I think he will set out this side not necessarily to frustrate Pep but I think that he certainly will have a plan in place to kind of combat the weaker aspects of Pep Guardiola's side i.e. defensive midfield, the defence, the kind of full-back areas. Who, you know, areas that that City have weaknesses and that you know Everton aren't that bad in those positions they have a bit of pace they have a bit of trickery in some of their wingers they have guys who like to take shots which is something that we've seen already this season Ederson doesn't like to deal with so you know there could be some interesting you know interesting bits coming out of this match especially when you look at the kind of what what are they adrift by 14 points adrift of, of Liverpool and Man City are yeah you're looking at that and you're like, Ooh, does Pep even really care about the league anymore? Is this more of an experimental thing? You know, will he care more about the match at the weekend in the FA Cup? Quite possibly. Yeah, that's an interesting point, actually. Like, it is going to be interesting to see going forward what they actually do in the league. Will they start messing about with teams a little? Yeah. Uh, uh, try different stuff? Or will they just kind of stick with what they're doing and try and stay, keep that focus for when the Champions League comes back? Or yeah. what do they do? And then, Finally, uh, for the last time this year, let's look ahead to Arsenal against Manchester United. Yeah, which I think is probably, as you said, I think it probably will be the most interesting match. Like, far be it for me to say my prophecies, but Solskjaer appears to have lasted out this year anyway. Whether he'll last the season is another question. But he's lasted out this year, and um, he goes into it now the strongest position he's been in all season, really. He's in fifth place. He's 
not necessarily in touching distance of Champions League football, but he's as close as he's ever been. Uh, he's got no real competition. You can't the Spurs side below him, right immediately below him, aren't really up to much and have been riding their luck since Mourinho's been in charge. So he looks to have a clear run at Chelsea if he wants. Um, I think there's fundamental problems with the way they play. I think they've been very fortunate in recent weeks. I know they put it together a good performance against Newcastle, but watching Newcastle subsequently, that wouldn't be very difficult. Uh, I think they're playing some of the worst football in the whole league. So Newcastle, that is, not Manchester United, so it would be easier for them. That said, Manchester United have a fantastic record against the so-called better sides in the league, the sides that want to hold on to the ball more, the sides that want to build up attacks from the back, which is something that Arteta is trying to introduce at Arsenal. So it looks tailor-made for a victory for Solskjaer and uh, another defeat for Arsenal. But as we said briefly earlier on, I think maybe Arteta was targeting this match, the way that he set out the teams, the way he was hesitant to change a lot of the players, the way he let them ride out the 90 minutes. I think a lot of those players won't play 90 minutes again or won't even start this match against Manchester United. And maybe there'll be a lot more running in this match than maybe Solskjaer would expect from a more, you know, the more traditional uh, passing, controlling football that the likes of Mikel Arteta likes to play. Well, uh, interesting as well, uh, just two points I want to make actually, is the fact that Mikel Arteta was on the sideline there at the start of the month when uh, Manchester United went to the Etihad and won 2-1, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So it'll be yeah. interesting to see, like Arteta got a first-hand look at what Manchester United do in these kind of games. Yeah. He, he knows kind of, not necessarily how to set up, but he'll have a plan based on how United yeah. performed in that game. It'll be interesting to see uh, what he comes up with, because I have no doubt that they'll make changes based on the Chelsea performance. But interesting as well for Manchester United is that they have been able to keep their players fresher than most teams have over the course of this week. Uh, because of the nature of the way that they beat Newcastle, they're able to take off players mm. relatively early in that game and bring on others to give them minutes. Like Paul Pogba got 45 minutes against Newcastle. Uh, didn't then play at all against Burnley, uh, which was a risk. Not worrying at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it's an interesting one. Like It is expected yeah. that he will play against Arsenal He's now. not for sale come three days from now. Well, it's, I, I don't think he is. Like uh, Mino Raiola, even himself, has said that he's not leaving in January. So if he's... Like he, you can he, trust Mino Raiola as far as you can throw Mino Raiola and that's not very far uh, well I think that's just allegedly I think it's just uh, interesting that of all the people that would be pushing for a move now it's the man uh, Mino Raiola, Raiola that isn't pushing for a move I, I don't think United would sell in January mm. uh, is the only thing I, I think they'd rather bring players in in January before they yeah. sell anyone like at all even Phil Jones I'd say is not up for sale in January let, let, let me po- posit something for you here okay. and hear me out a swap deal with Real Madrid for Eden Hazard and Pogba going the other way. Because I think Real Madrid have proven Eden Hazard. Is, well, it's early days, I suppose, still, but it hasn't worked out thus far. He hasn't adapted really well to the, the Spanish game, the pace of it, the intensity of it, the the control burst that you're required to do well in, in Spain, in the league game at least. And his Champions League performances haven't that great either. So would he come back to the Premier League go back to a place where he'll be loved and cherished and made the main man while Pogba gets his dream to be united with Zidane Zidane gets his man it looks like everyone wins because Pogba's won the way for ages Woodward pulls out a coup getting Eden Hazard who is you know at the moment no that's not going to happen I'm just going to stop you that's not going to (laughs) happen that's a a ludicrous idea uh, from start to finish so I'm not even going to entertain the thought anymore because that's that, that, that wouldn't make any sense. That would, like, I know that necessarily Ed Woodward doesn't make any sense, but that's too far. Even Do you not want him. another left sided midfielder? Uh, but it would it would fit the it would fit the narrative perfectly to sign another player to play that same position, and then as Sanchez come back from his from his loan spell as well. Uh, but I think with this match, uh, I think Pogba will play. It'll be interesting to see his Luke Shaw player Brandon Williams played because Williams uh, credited himself pretty well against Burnley. I thought. Yeah. Uh, Scott McTominay is out injured so it'll be probably Fred will Matic play again can Matic even play again like uh, there's I think you have to like you could drop Pereira deeper potentially uh, I don't yeah. know if that would work very well or it could be a new role for Pereira I think it would be interesting but then Solskjaer is not someone who takes risks I think you're looking at Matic and, and whatchamacallum Fred Fred yeah, at the holding the base midfield which is no, it's not. It's not a partnership that sends fear into the opposition. But then at the same time, Arsenal are a team with one win since October. Yeah. So, you know, they are the worst, the worst performing side in the whole league. So, 
you you have to despite all the the uptakes on from the Arteta appointment and everything we discussed it's positives from that Chelsea match they still lost that match and they could still I you know a draw I think Arsenal would take at this point yeah I think while while I just want to put it out there that Arsenal will 100% score from a set piece in this match possibly uh, I, I just want to put it out there for when it inevitably happens so I can you know say I told you so or whatever. will a, will a goal go straight in from a corner though that's what I'm uh, did that happen before. Or something. Uh, it's, it's Paul do it at one point. Uh, Thierry Henry did it. I'm trying to think. Not of the recently, that, No, no. Steve Staunton did it twice in 1992. Not in this picture, though. <laughs> no, but playing for Liverpool, I think. Yeah. Did he do it against Manchester United? I can't he might remember. have. Um, My memory doesn't quite go back to Steve Staunton in 1992, to be honest. Oh, you, sh- you should. Like, uh, you should. Maybe it should. Great times. But yeah. Great times. Uh, but this match, I think. Yeah, I think Arsenal will take a draw, but. For Man United, I think it would be a statement for them to go out and win this because, like, when was the last time they won three league games in a row? It's been a long time. Uh, and yeah. frankly, the fact that this would mean three wins in a row is the biggest factor in me thinking Man United will not win this match because they just they cannot they seem would, to take any momentum forward could, at all. Uh, they are, could you think about how Solskjaer would have turned everything around, really? Because you know, he would be within three points in theory, could possibly be within three points of Champions League football, you know, of the top four, considering everything that's gone on this season, the kind of abysmal performances, the, you know... Even as recently the, as against Watford. Yeah, exactly. And, the, you know, the kind of lack of plan, the lack of design, the the seemingly no future plans for anyone in the team, the lack of, a, you know, the lack of a united front on, on players, uh, the, the seemingly lack of spirit between a lot of the players, the reliance on the over-reliance on youth. And yet, with all that being said, due to the topsy-turviness of the league this season, the fact that nobody can string matches together in any considerable way, they, you know, being that Sheffield United were the big rivals to this point for fifth place, they could be within touching distance of Champions League football again. And that, like, that would be a greater achievement than... Well, I wouldn't say Leicester winning the league, but that could be a greater achievement than Leicester if he's finishing in the top four, if Solskjaer could finish in the top four this season. Yeah, and it'll be interesting as we head into 2020 to see what the rest of this uh, Premier League season looks like and what the the next decade has to give for football. It was a pretty monumental decade that we've just had uh, as we went through in our 100th episode there of our top 10 moments of the decade. So Mm. it'll be interesting to see, you know, when we come back in 10 years' time, how will the two top ten lists potentially compare uh, between these two things. If you if, want me to predict now. Alive, is, <laughs> yeah, uh, if the world alive. hasn't crashed and burned by then. Yeah, European Super League is a, is a think possibility or something like it, a complete reformat of the Champions League and something like it. It's not outside the realm of possibilities that if the formats of everything stayed the same that we could have, like Real Madrid winning four in five years, we could have a team winning five in five years of Champions League if they have the, the right budget and the right you know mix of players and coach. Like the the I think the game could potentially get a lot more boring in the next ten years. But at the same time, if we look here at home and in the FAI in Ireland, like the potential is, is endless. Once you have something that fixes the corruption or the rot in the, in in the game, which you know could happen, we thought that might have happened with FIFA and the whole corruption scandal hitting the headlines in the last ten years. It didn't really change anything. In fact, we're all still saddled with the the problems that arose from that corrupted era. Maybe. A, a massive sea change in the way the the global game is governed could result in in huge benefits for the whole game as a whole, and we could be back in having very exciting times for the next ten years. I brought an optimistic outlook for the future there. Burn um, it all, yeah, burn it all. Kill it if you have to. <laughs> uh, and with that, uh, we will close off uh, the Total Football Podcast for the year of 2019. But we will be back uh, next Monday to start off 2020 with our annual predictions for the year uh, show so we'll have to start thinking about uh, what we'll be predicting for the future any prophecies coming to mind there Andrew The Rise of Skywalker will not be a good film uh, Is it? does it count as a prophecy when it's something from that's already happened ooh I, I'm not sure it is I don't know if you said this the a Titanic year ago might sink if you'd said that a year ago, I think it would have counted as a prophecy, but I think when it's already released and everyone's had their opinion, I don't think it quite counts, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Limburg will cross the Atlantic in an aeroplane. Yeah, okay. that's You heard it here first, folks. And uh, with that, we will close out the show. So thank you for being here, not just today, but all year, Andrew. Thank you for listening to my prophecies. And uh, thank you, listener, for being here in 2019. We'll be back again next week and next year. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then don't forget you can tell family and friends about the show. Spread the word of the Total Football Takeover. You can also follow us on social media at the TF Pod on Twitter and Total Football Pod on Instagram. You can also be found on podcast services, including Spotify, by searching Total Football Podcast. The more the merrier. That's what we always say.